Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you are called to this because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Welcome to Christ Community Church. My name is Jeff Kennedy. I'm the senior pastor here. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We are camping out in some of the same verses that we have been in. Now, last week, we really sort of laid the groundwork, the foundation for understanding slavery from a Roman perspective. And this week, we are going to, uh, what Peter is going to do is he is going to push us toward uh, understanding why we are to emulate Christ. Now, everything you ever learned as a toddler, as a child, as a little boy or a little girl, you learn from emulating your mom and dad. Have you ever seen your kid do something, like they're little like that, and then they do something, you go, hey, that's your mom. Or, hey, that's me. Uh, our kids used to do that when they were little. I, I remember two, two times in particular. I don't remember the bad ones, uh, but I remember some of the good ones. And one of the times, my little boy, Tyler, <clears throat> he's our firstborn, and when he was really little, he wanted to be just like me. And so he would get up, and I was a pastor of a church in Post Falls, and he would get up every morning and have a little, he had a little toy briefcase, and he would be sitting on the stairs, and I would come upstairs after getting ready, and, he, and I would say, where, where are you going, buddy? And he would put on his glasses, and he would go, I'm going to write my sermon with Daddy. I was like, super sweet. So I would take him to the office, and he didn't write anything. He just kind of scrawled some stuff on a piece of paper and played with some Legos in my office when we got to work. Uh, eventually, he grew out of that. Now he doesn't want to be like me. He wants to be his own person. But initially, he learned to talk. Everything he learned to do, he learned it from me. Same with Carly. My, my last born, my fourth kid, um, is ju just wants to go to Starbucks all the time. And it's because in my 30s, uh, when I was rearing this kid, she would be waiting for me on the steps, and she would be waiting, w waiting there, and I would come up, and she would say, go to Starbucks. And I go, no, we're not going to Starbucks today. She goes, daddy, go to Starbucks. Carly, go to Starbucks, you know. And so she just wanted to emulate me. She wanted to do what she saw me do. And the whole main idea of this sermon is actually super, it just could not be more simple. Here it is. In the Christian faith, we learn how to be a Christian by emulating Christ. We learn how to be a Christian by emulating our Savior, our Lord Jesus. What Peter is going to do is he's going to take us now from the code, right? So he's given us some household codes. He's given us some social codes. And then he's going to say, well, I just want to stop. I just want to pause. I want you to see why we do this. 
I want you to see that this is Jesus in his body, being his body to the church. So last week we gave an overview of Christ's willing submission to human authorities and the fact that every person, regardless of their station in life, their socioeconomic status, their ethnicity, their place of origin, their place of providence, is a slave to sin. So it doesn't matter whether you're free or you're not free, you're a slave to sin until you're not. And you're not when you surrender and submit to Christ, the Lord of glory. So this week, Peter is going to give us a couple of ideas of how we can look like Jesus. First of all, we can have a commendable consciousness of God. That's number one. We can have a commendable consciousness of God. To read that verse again, he says in 18 and 19, Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not, underline that word not, like that word, Not only the good ones, but the bad ones. Not only the ones that are good and gentle, but also those who are cruel. That's a good translation. Those who are cruel and unjust. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief with suffering from suffering unjustly. Now think about this. Verse 18, he addresses what he calls the oikates. The oikates, that word comes from the word, uh, word oikeo, which means to gather in a home, right? And so that word is the word in the New Testament for domestic servant. That's what it means. Now, the word for slave is the word doulos. That's a different word, but he's not using that word here. He's talking about the household servants, which is why that's translated that way. And so they are to subordinate themselves in their station of life in the first century. And this, would, this word subordination literally means to stand underneath. It means to stand under the authority of the one who's been put in authority over you. That's what it means. And so they are to do so in phobo, all fear. It says pantephobo, which means all fear. Fear of who? The master? Uh, the person who runs their home? No. They're to do so in fear of God. Remember, last week we learned, last couple of weeks we learned that we are to honor the emperor, honor the governor, honor everyone, but fear God. God is the only one you fear. Why? Because God is the author of authority. God is the one who put authorities, allowed them to be in the positions that they are. And ultimately, you and I are going to answer to God. We're going to answer to God. Now, what is godly fear? I've told you this before, but I want to tell you again as many times as as this comes up. Godly fear is not merely reverence. I've heard people try to sort of euphemize it that way, just sort of soften it to say, well, we we don't want to really think about being afraid of God. Oh, yeah, you do. (laughs) You kind of do. Because God is the almighty God. That's the God you and I serve. Now, I will tell you this. You and I can experience reverence, and we can experience awe, and wonder in the safety of our car at ground level looking up on a mountain. Like you can look at that mountain from the safety and comfort of your car and go, oh, that's wonderful. But you don't really know the fear of the mountain until you summit it. You don't know the fear and the power of that mountain until you get on it and you go up it. And you and I do not just have a holy awe of God. We have a holy fear of the mountain of his power. And the fear of God for the unbeliever means an awful dread. It means an awful dread of judgment. That is something truly to be terrified of. And if you're not a believer, it's something 
It's not something you should look forward to. You definitely don't uh, look forward to that. But the fear of God as a believer means this. It's a sense of wondrous alarm. Have you ever stood in front of something and you just had wondrous alarm? I know these crazy people that go out in Yellowstone. It seems like it's every week now where somebody's getting gored by one of those big animals. What are they called? What are they called? Whatever they're called. Buffalo, big cows with horns and stuff and bulls. And these people are out there like five feet from them trying to get a picture and a little selfie and they get gored. Now they have a wonder in their hearts, but they don't have an appropriate fear of the power of the thing that they're in wonder of. And that's not Christian fear. That's not the fear of God. It's not just a sense of wonder. It's wondrous alarm that the thing you're standing in front of has the power to kill you. Jesus said this, don't, don't be afraid of people. Don't be afraid of people who can kill your body. Fear the one who could kill both your body and your soul in hell. That's who you should have an appropriate fear of. So it's a sense of wondrous alarm. It's a blissful panic. A blissful panic. There is an experience of bliss in the presence of the Lord, but it also is a panic-inducing experience. Again, if you read Isaiah 6, it's very clear. Isaiah is having the most incredible experience of his life as he is seeing the high king of heaven exalted on his throne, this amazing theophany, this amazing vision, and it's just terrifying to stand before this God. It's an unnerving adoration. Listen, if your worship has never inspired a moment when you have just had this unnerving sense of adoration where you adore God but you get just a sense in your heart this is this is the almighty God we're talking about then you're not doing worship right because God is great God is magnificent and we should have in our worship a sense of what I would call a sanctified fear a sanctified, holy sense of panic at his being. It's our worship is a solemnity set ablaze by the fire of the Holy Spirit. He says, all fear. So, as you obey authorities, you do it in the fear of God. 18b. Now look at the rest of this passage. He says, their subordination or submission is to be to the despotes. What are the despotes? That's where we get the word despot. Uh, that word means tyrant. In our language, uh, it means uh, tyrant or despot. In their world, it meant an owner, one who is, has legal jurisdiction over a person or a people. One who has legal jurisdiction over a person or a people. So he's saying to them, whoever is the master of your home, it's usually the father. Pretty much all, all the time in, Ro- in the Roman world, it would be the father. And this person was the master of the home. And whether he says he treats you well or not, you are to show him deference. Uh, 18C, he says this, not only the Agathes, the good ones, you ever know, have you ever met anyone named Agatha? This is where that word comes from. It means good. Agathes is the Greek word for good. So not only the good ones who are kind and tolerant or kind and gentle toward you, uh, they are benevolent despotes, but also those who seek to, uh, <clears throat> but also those who are bad. The scaliois, these scoundrels, the morally twisted and corrupted. That, that original word of scaliois, that word means to be twisted like a branch. It's just not straight. 
It's not a straight arrow. It's twisted and corrupted. And so the summary here is that Christian Christian servants in the Roman households were to be the models of Jesus, the servant king. The models of Jesus, the servant king. The same reaction and response to both the good leadership and crooked and corrupt leadership was was to characterize their Christian life. Verse 19, for this brings charis. The word charis, if you've ever met anyone named Carissa, that word means grace. And here's, here's what it means uh, in the Greek. The essential meaning of it is a winsome quality. It is the quality of attractiveness which brings favorable reaction, a beneficent disposition toward someone else. So the whole idea here is the servant in a lowly position is to respond to those over them be they just or corrupt, by willing subordination in Christ, in a holy reverence and fear for God, evidenced by a winsome and appealing disposition of heart. That sounds like a good Christian. That sounds like the kind of person that that Peter and Paul would want in these households representing the character and nature of Christ in sometimes just and sometimes unjust situations. 19b, he says, if only... If on account of synodesis. Now, this word means consciousness. It means a conscious awareness of something. And he says synodesis theou. What that means is a conscious awareness of God. So this person is showing now the evidence of their life that they are conscious of God's presence and his reign and his rule over them and over their master, over their household, over their community, over their country. And what they are showing their Household is this. This is what it means to be a loving, gracious servant of God. Following Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 20. It says, for what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. So God smiles on this person who is treated unjustly. In a situation that they can't control, God smiles on this. God's favor is upon this situation. And what credit is it if you're breaking the law and you get put in prison? What credit to you is it if you're a Christian and you break the law and the master takes you out and puts you uh, and, and locks you away in the outhouse? You know, like he's saying, what, what credit is it to you if you're trying to escape or you're trying to break the law? But if you do good and you're still treated poorly, that is a credit to you. That brings the favor of God. And it can also bring the favor of the people that you're displaying the character of God in front of. So, summary. The disciple is to remain unflappably deferential. Unwaveringly deferential. In the hopes of winning over the earthly authorities. Showing the character of Christ to the just and the unjust in their sufferings. Two. A refusal to sin against God by retaliation. So this is the this is the image now and the character and the pattern of Christ. This Christian is not the kind of person that seeks vengeance or retaliation in the in the face of wrongdoing or injustice. This is not that kind of person. He says in verse 21, for you were called to this uh, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. You and I are to follow the example of Christ. But what are the footsteps? What is the example? He's going to tell us here. He actually 
paraphrases, paraphrases Isaiah 53. Very important passage. Write that down. Isaiah 52 and 53. And he actually quotes it in reverse. He quotes like verse 9, then verse 6, and then verse 4. It's weird. It's a weird quotation. But it's not really a quotation. He's just alluding to it. This is an echo of Isaiah 53. And he says, He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. So he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So Christ refused the path of deception, deceiving, he refused the path of retaliation or returning insult for insult to his accusers. Jesus renounced violence and vengeance toward his accusers. That was the pattern of his life. And instead, he prayed for, the forg- for their forgiveness. He hangs on the cross, and instead of calling 10,000 angels, what does he do? Father, forgive them. Now, he could have said, Father, smoke them. <laughs> you know, but that wasn't the prayer. Thankfully for us, that wasn't the prayer. Father smoked them. The, the prayer was, Father, they don't know what they're doing. The people who are persecuting you, they don't know. They don't understand what you are. They don't understand you're the assembly of the living God. They don't understand that you're the church and, and, and you're the special possession and, and the elect people of God. They don't understand all that, what we're doing in here. So he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So he prayed for their forgiveness. So Jesus resisted the temptation to retaliate in return for the violence and injustice that he suffered. So he didn't bully. He didn't intimidate or threaten people. Instead, he completely entrusted himself to who? The God who judges justly. What he says is, I'm going to be judged, not by you on the cross. I'm going to be judged by God. And if I'm a sinner and I'm speaking deceptively and I'm telling you a lie, then God will be my judge, not this cross. And what was God's judgment on Jesus? Vindication. His resurrection from the dead is God's judgment of vindication that Jesus of Nazareth is who he claimed to be. So he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. What passage is he talking about? He's talking about Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. And we're going to look at that passage. We're going to go back to Isaiah's passage and look at it in particular. Now, I want to say this. If you can't see the story of Jesus in this passage, you are truly spiritually blind. Do you know what happened with this passage? This passage was interpreted uh, by the Jews in their commentaries, uh, in their interpretive commentaries. It was interpreted as a messianic passage, and the Jewish rabbis in Jesus' day did not know what to do with it. They had no idea what to do with this passage, because this passage is a subversion of expectations. This passage, passage is a reversal of fortunes. They did not expect the Messiah to look like this. Now, after Jesus, this is interesting, after Jesus died, okay, we're having a nerd moment here. I'm excited. Uh, so after he died, historically, what we know is that the rabbis took it out of their readings in the Haftarah. They took it out. If you were to go to Israel today, and you were to go to good synagogue-going, uh, temple-going Jews, and read this passage... There, there are guys, there are, are Jewish evangelists who do this in Israel today. And those Jewish people raised in Judaism would not know that this was from their Bible. They would think that this was from the New Testament. Why are you quoting the, New Te- the Gospel of Matthew to me, right? So here it is. Uh, what you need to know about Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, really quickly, is that the book of Isaiah is divided into two halves. 
First part is 1 through 39. And 1 through 39, here, here's the gist of it. The big story is this. 1 through 39 is about God's judgment and hope, his judgment on the first servant. He calls Israel, the nation, his son, Jacob. In chapter 1, he has a covenant lawsuit. And in that covenant lawsuit, he says, you were supposed to be my son. And you were supposed to be faithful. And you're supposed to be just and not full of corruption and idolatry. But you failed. And then throughout that, that first half, God says, I'm going to send a new son. And the new son, my new Jacob, my new servant, my new Israel, is going to be faithful. And then when we get to the second half of the book, now there is a dark chasm between chapter 39 and chapter 40. It's the exile. What has been prophesied happens. And between chapter 40 and chapter 66, they're full of what are called servant songs. There are five servant songs, starting with chapter 42, actually. There are five of them. This is the fourth one. The sixth one is Isaiah 61, but this is the fifth one. Now, what he has been doing since chapter 42 is he's been trying to tell, you, tell them, oh, how lovely on the mount are the feet of them who bring good news. He's coming. The new servant, my new son, Israel, is coming, and I'm going to restart Israel. I'm going to restart Israel, the remnant. Look up that word, remnant. I'm going to restart the people of God in him. And the good news is he's coming. How beautiful are the feet, right? So, of him who brings good news. Okay, great. Then, but he says, but he's going to suffer horrifically. And you're like, say what? What do you mean the Messiah is going to suffer horrifically? And then we get to chapter 52 and chapter 53, and he really details how horrific it is. So the servant will be, chapter 52, verse 13, the servant will be highly exalted, raised above all kings of the earth, but because of his disfigurement, Israel, the old Israel, the last Israel, the first Israel, cannot look upon him, and they cannot accept him. Look at this. It says, see, my servant will be successful. He will prosper. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Okay, that's good. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man. And his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told them. And they will understand what they had not heard. So this act of being raised and exalted comes through his disfigurement. It comes through his suffering. Now, immediately the nation, in hearing the prophecy, goes, hold on, that's not what the Messiah is supposed to look like. So they have incredulity. They don't believe that this is supposed to be the way God exalts him, through his disfigurement, through his mortality, and through his death. Now, that's the preamble. That's the introduction. Now, the word sprinkling there is the same word that is used in Leviticus of the high priest who goes into the holy place, and he takes a little brush, and he dips it in the blood of the sacrifice, and he spatters it and smatters it all over everything. Every instrument in that room is covered in blood, and then he spatters himself too. He covers literally everything in the Holy of Holies, and it's a symbol to say now everything is covered by the blood and so that's the same word. It's the same word that is used in Leviticus of that sprinkling. So now this is jarring for the Jew. Wait a minute, what? Read the rest. 
53.1. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, the prophet recognizes the disbelief that will accompany this message. Who could possibly believe what I'm about to tell you? Israel was used, what they were used to were military warriors, and they had their fill of those. And by this time in Israel's history, these kings had failed miserably. No one can live up to Torah. No one can fulfill the covenant. Nobody can bring the people to the salvation that the prophet has promised. They failed. And Israel was used to these military warriors. They were habituated to think about a grand Davidic dynasty. But the shocking new direction will hardly be believable by Jews conditioned to the old way. Verse 2. First he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have any impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. Now the expectation is subverted. You would think that a king would have majesty. You would think that a king, here's how you know you're talking about a king, because you would think that a king would come in glory and splendor, all the pomp and tinsel surrounding the royal courts, but he doesn't. He prophesies that this king will be, not be born into the splendor of a royal public office, but his upbringing is nondescript. His upbringing is so obscure and unknown. His social status was utterly unremarkable and undistinguished. He is a peasant king. But if, if that wasn't enough, Isaiah is going to give you more, more reasons for incredulity. Here they are. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sorrow was or knew what sickness or affliction was. And he, he was like someone people turned away from, not someone people come to. He was despised and we didn't even value him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And so this peasant king is not fawned over. People are not fawning over him or welcoming him. In fact, he's shown contempt and he's rejected. And he isn't coddled and reared in the soft halls by gentle hands in the palace. He's hewn like a piece of stone in a carpenter's shop. And he doesn't come commanding warriors and sending them off to foreign lands to win victories. No, he doesn't do that. Or to secure plunder for his royal coffers. Nope. Instead, he's a hillside sage who tells people parables about fruit and fish and trees and sheep. But if that wasn't enough, Isaiah will give you even more reasons to show this backwater son of Jesse, root of Jesse, total contempt. Here they are. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken. Struck down by God, afflicted. Now those words stricken and struck down are the same words in the Old Testament that, that means to strike in the face. To punch someone in their face, broadhand them in the face. And he was afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities and the punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed, healed, restored reconciled by his wounds. And so this servant king bears our sicknesses and affliction. He carries our heartache. And in turn, we regard him as cursed. Deuteronomy says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And the prophet says, when you see him, you'll think he's cursed, for sure cursed by God. And he is beaten, afflicted. 
But the affliction we assume was God's sentence of wrath upon him was actually God's sentence of wrath upon sin. And in our place, he takes the punishment and the full wrath of God. He drinks the full cup for you, for me. And, and instead of being healed, he is wounded for our healing. It says, for he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence. He had not spoken deceitfully. This is remarkable. This was prophesied 700 years before Jesus. And look what it says. The abuse that he suffers leads him to death. It's death and burial, and it seems so final. An undistinguished upbringing to a remarkable ministry of vicarious suffering, suffering, ending the shame and death and burial. Ending in shame and death and burial among the wicked and the sinful, yet with a rich man. Who is that? Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea, he was buried in Joseph's grave. And he was laid in a rich man's grave. Who could ask for worse than this? Who could ask for worse? Well, there is worse. Here it comes. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. Okay, God. so it was God's good pleasure that he be crushed on our behalf. And when you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. That means offspring. He will prolong his days. How? Through his offspring. And by his hand, the Lord's hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. So it was God's will that all this take place. Hard for us to fathom it. And this was the will of God from eternity past before the foundations of the world God had intended to do this very thing. And it was not only his will, the whole act of sacrifice, it actually pleases the Lord because it brings so many children, so many offspring into God's house, fulfilling what covenant? Abraham's. The promise to Abraham to increase his offspring across the face of the earth. And so the one who becomes a guilt offering to atone for our sins, that offering fulfilling Abraham's promise to prolong his descendants across the earth. And then he is raised to life to justify the sinner through his atoning work. Verse 11, after his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. How can he do that if he's dead? He can't. He's alive. And he will carry their iniquities. And therefore I will give them him the, the many as a portion. And he will receive the mighty as a spoil. Because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet bore, he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. So this lowly servant king, this peasant king intervenes on our behalf. Sinful rebels. Rebels in God's kingdom. And to save us from our sin. To save us from open, defiant rebellion in God's realm. And this is the Jesus way, Peter tells us. This is why he cited that passage. To recall this passage in our minds. To help us to see this is the Jesus way. If you are free, he says, and you live under tyrants or despots, act like Jesus. Act like Jesus who was slain, who willingly submitted to God's will. Show them what Christ looks like in the midst of horrific suffering. Not using our freedom as an opportunity to sin and to rebel, but using our freedom as an opportunity to show the character of Christ in the midst of horrific suffering. And number two, if you're indentured, he says, or you're enslaved, if you're not free, do the same. Act like Jesus. Within your household, within the limitations that you've been given, act like Jesus. 
We are to display the meek, humble, sacrificial love of Jesus to the good ones and the bad ones. To the just ones and the unjust ones. And this is what Jesus looks like in death. This is what Jesus looks like in vindication and resurrection. And you and I are to look like that. I'm going to call the worship team back up. We're going to prepare to take communion this morning. 1 Corinthians 11:27 through 32, it says this. Here's what Paul told them. He says, So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the whole body and blood of the Lord. Let a person first examine himself. And this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks with, without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And this is why many are falling sick among you. And many have actually fallen asleep, which means they died. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. What is he saying here? What is he saying in this moment? The Corinthians were guilty. The Corinthian Christians, uh, he had to address all kinds of nonsense and crazy stuff going on in their body. First of all, they, they were guilty of almost tearing the body of Christ apart, tearing it apart, destroying it. <clears throat> One, they had factions and deep divisions within the church. So they were, they were factionalized over silly things. And two, they were sexually immoral. He says, there's sexual immorality among you that's not even among the pagans. Imagine that. And he says, your disorderly and chaotic worship is bringing dishonor to the Lord. You're high on spontaneity and low on intelligibility. So you need to bring some order back to your worship. And then there was a wing of the church that was actually denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus. What is he telling them to do here? Check yourself. Reflect. Take a few minutes here to think about your own heart and your own attitude and your own actions. Do you have a heart and an attitude or are you harboring a secret sin that is bringing dishonor on the body of Christ that is actually threatening to destroy the body of Christ? And if so, this is the moment before we take communion. This is the moment for you to confess that sin to the Lord and to honor the body. Are you an unbeliever? This meal isn't for you. If you're an unbeliever, this meal isn't for you. But that doesn't mean you can't partake because you can choose to embrace the cross that these emblems represent. You can believe in Christ right now and embrace his bodily death. Now, what Peter wants to tell us is this. Be careful. Be careful that you look like Christ. Is there any way in which you... Your life looks more like a rebel than it does a person who surrendered to Christ and his authority. And if that's so, confess it right now. Will you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Father, we just want to search our hearts with the help of the Holy Spirit. God, your broken body and your shed blood was for us. God, it was for us so that we may be forgiven of sin and Lord would you just help us would you search our hearts right now God we confess our anger God we confess our selfishness Lord we confess rebellion 
God, we confess harboring secret sins that no one knows about. We lay them bare and bring them into the light of your cross. God, we confess uh, just being deceived. And we need the light of your truth and the gospel. God, we confess unforgiveness and resentment. Lord, we release that unforgiveness and that resentment that we're holding toward others right now. We just let it go. Help us to, to love those who have hurt us or to love those who have done us wrong. Help us to have the supernatural love of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. Help us to emulate your pattern. We pray in Jesus' name. Paul goes on to say, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Will you take the bread? Father, we thank you for your body broken for us. Broken, actually tortured, so that we might have forgiveness of sins. Paul says in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood and do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Will you join me in proclaiming his death? Let's drink the cup. Father, this morning we just say hallelujah. Praise God. God, the symbols of communion have allowed us actually to just play out in a theater what we actually have done spiritually. We have partaken of the life of the Trinity of God. And we have partaken of it through your blood and through your flesh broken for us on a cross, vindicated in resurrection. And so, Lord, we just want to proclaim our praises to you this morning. We want to lift those praises high. Amen. Will you stand? We're going to close with uh, worship and benediction.